Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clinton. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. It seems today that all eyes are on the president. Increasingly, media coverage and normal citizens think of the president as being at the center of all federal political power. Congress is in the background playing bass while fans ask for Joe Biden's autograph. But it wasn't always this way. As much as we look back on our history and think of the legacies of presidents rather than congressional leadership figures. But today, that perception is increasingly correct that the president is more important than Congress. Today, we're going to talk about how this happened and why it may pose a danger to American democracy. So before we get into it, just to this is the third episode in a series we're doing on democratic backsliding based on an article from political science professor Nancy Bermeo by the same name. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes in this series, well, you should. They're very good. We talk about the basics of the theory of democratic backsliding, and then we talk about the example of Hungary in the second episode. They help tee up a lot of the ideas we discuss here. But just a few quick definitions on some key terms that we've gone over in previous episodes, but in case you missed them or you don't remember. First is backsliding, obviously the topic. This is the usually slower and more subtle erosion of democracy by methods other than overt coups and things like that. We're also going to be talking about executive aggrandizement, which is a form or method of backsliding. It's a process of increasing the institutional power of the executive relative to other independent sources of power like the legislative and or relative to opposition power. And then third, one other form or method of democratic backsliding that we're going to talk about is strategic manipulation of elections. These are reforms of electoral rules or practices that tilt the electoral playing field to the party or individual in power in contrast to sort of ballot stuffing or more overt forms of election theft. Yeah, and just a quick disclaimer before we get going. In a lot of cases when scholars discuss executive aggrandizement, they mean a specific individual or political party increasing the powers of the executive at the expense of political opposition, right? Just like the definition Philip just gave. I would say that the case is slightly different in the U.S., right? We're seeing the institution of the presidency having its powers radically expanded by both political parties as they have alternated power. Over time. Over time in the past, I don't know, three decades, maybe four decades. And so what we're trying to hit on here, and as, as we left off our episode on Hungary, talking about sort of seeing these things as they occur before things take a drastic turn for the worse, right? And so the danger with what's going on with the presidency in the U.S. is that the growth of that power probably is set to continue to increase. And if it finds itself in the wrong hands at the wrong time, the integrity of American democracy could be at serious risk. These changes have not meant the end of American democracy as such, among all of the challenges that American democracy is facing, but that if we can pinpoint them now, maybe we can do something before it gets 
to an irreversible turning point. So, how did the president come to dominate Congress? Well, in general, the reality is that Congress is shaped by incentives that do not necessarily lead to strong and forceful governance, as we've seen particularly in more modern history. That's partially intentional. The founders were more concerned about growth of legislative power than the growth of executive power after having uh, being formerly you know British citizens and having seen how how powerful a legislature could be against an executive and that's why they split Congress into two chambers right. the house I mean among other reasons that is one reason why they split Congress into two chambers the house and the senate however despite the perhaps good intentions of dividing that power and separating the executive and the legislative, this relationship between the two branches of government has taken a turn that is less than ideal. Yeah, so the in one famous political science text on Congress called Congress, the Electoral Connection, the political scientist David Mayhew sort of theorizes that if we assume the primary goal of any member of Congress is to be reelected, you'll see these sort of incentives, um, perverse incentives take shape or just incentives he's not, he doesn't i don't think he renders a value judgment um under that kind of a condition right there's this incentive to focus on bringing spending projects and jobs to your district as opposed to big pieces of legislation with national impact so members of congress will be happy to signal a plenty where they stand on policy positions and to you know claim credit for say the bridge that's being built in their district which might bring jobs but it's to their electoral advantage not to be responsible for for major initiatives right if those initiatives fail then you seem like you've got egg on your face it's kind of the classic free rider problem, right? You can reap the benefits of being in a large group, keep your head down, maybe get a little bit of spending here, say you care about this issue, and not putting in a ton of work to towards leadership or introducing major pieces of legislation. And I think if you look at how Congress has historically behaved and behaves today, that that sort of theory generally holds up, I think, empirically, if we look at it. So it's an important contribution to political science. But I think in recent decades, and um, especially with the unleashing of campaign finance, now if you want to get reelected, it's not just about bringing jobs to your district. It's about appeasing big donors who could true. fund yeah. enormous campaigns. And right. when you might be running against somebody else who's more willing to appease big donors, and they get lots of money and you don't, it, it poses a danger to your reelection. So campaign finance has further sort of perversed this incentive structure yeah. in, in Congress. Yeah, that's a very important point. And of course, big donors are almost always going to be on the whole bias towards status quo, which is exactly. going to mean that Congress does less and less exactly. on average. So that's one thing that has changed, I think, in recent years. But Congress has also become more sorted along party lines. They've become more polarized with the American electorate. And the reasons for this are, I think, sort of myriad and complex. Scholars are, you know, continuing to argue about what the causes are. But I'm just going to rattle off some that we can sort of quickly identify. You know, the civil rights and its backlash caused parties to sort as conservative Southern Democrats and liberal Northern Republicans were driven out of their respective parties. Changes in congressional rules in the 1990s gave leaders a lot more power over policymaking and the discipline of members not sticking to the party line, which leads to more sorting, obviously. And importantly, I think the internet and 24 
24-hour cable news have nationalized politics in ways that mean members are more dependent on the national success of their party than local appeals, right? As I said, you know, if you can bring a bridge to your district and get jobs, you might get reelected on that basis. But today, if you're a Republican member of Congress, you're going to be relying on the national looking environment. Looking like a being, Republican looking, rather right, than looking, looking like, like a Republican like... and the national environment being favorable to Republicans more so than, you know, what you can say, oh, I delivered this to my district, this yeah. bridge or this yeah. thing, right? Yeah, so, it's more about representing your party than representing your state than in the past, right. for sure, today. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about sorting, we also did an episode that sort of dives into the some of the theory of that and how it works with electoral rules and, and our voting system. So I'll link that in the show notes if you want to listen to it. We did a series of episodes on voting systems and different forms of democracy. It's very interesting. But besides that, in addition, the scope and power of the federal government have grown significantly in recent years. And Congress has increasingly seen fit to draft vague legislation that delegates a lot of policymaking power to the bureaucracy, which is largely under the control of the executive branch. In other words, that means as government has gotten bigger, you need more bureaucracy to carry out the more tasks. And bureaucracy falls under the branch of the executive. So Congress basically writes vague rules, says, okay, bureaucracy, now you figure out the details, delegating lots of power for policy implementation to the executive branch. And all of this together, and hopefully we didn't blaze through that too quickly, all of this together means that in a system with a lot of veto points, in this case, two separate chambers of a legislature, and a presidency, which can also veto legislation, there's going to be more gridlock. It's going to be harder to get things done. And in addition, as polarization and sorting have grown in the U.S., the Senate filibuster has become a popular tool of the minority party to hold up legislation from the majority party. Basically, there's a lot less room for Congress to get stuff done, and the incentives for members of Congress to take initiative are minimal or even sometimes negative. Mm -hmm. And this is all a recipe for giving the executive rather than the legislature, more power. So what kind of executive aggrandizement has come as a result of congressional atrophy? Well, first of all, it's worth pointing out that, you know, in some ways it's intuitive that this power would be delegated to the president and the Federalist Papers, right? There's this discussion of the unitary executive and how he has this sort of singular energy and vigor, which is sort of a, a, I guess, a political scientist today wouldn't like that kind of language. It's too vague. But it is true in a sense that if you have a single actor, they can be more decisive, make decisions, and they bear this pretty much the entirety of the responsibility for the decisions they make as the head of the executive branch, right? So you can see why this power would be delegated to the presidency. But what power? What kind of executive aggrandizement? Well, one looming example in the past two decades, or two looming examples in the past two decades, have been war powers and surveillance, right? So after the September 11th attacks, Congress passed two authorizations for the use of military force. One of those was general in scope, led to Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, and the other specifically for action against Saddam Hussein in Iraq, right? Those those authorizations have given the president a significantly increased power over foreign policy in the past two decades, although I would say that it had been increasing 
ever since the Second World War. Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam is right. perhaps another good example. Right, right. So in addition to those authorizations for the for the use of military force, Congress also passed the Patriot Act after September 11th, giving intelligence agencies, and by extension, the executive branch, because that's who's in charge of the intelligence agencies, the power to surveil American citizens. Right. So you take those two things together in sort of the realm of national security or homeland security, the presidency has seen its powers pretty vastly expanded, and the consequences have been significant. The United States military is conducting actions all around the world with not very much oversight from Congress. We have a good article about the poor accountability structure of military misbehavior that Harry wrote. I'll right. also link in the show notes if you want more on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's an to, important topic. To that point, right, there's a little way, there's not much in the way of institutional infrastructure that actually checks the president's power. If you look at, as the article was about that I wrote, drone warfare takes place with minimal oversight and accountability. And there have been attempts from some members of Congress to repeal the AUMF, the authorization for the use of military force, but nothing has been done so far. And Obviously, expanded surveillance powers, as we all know, we all read 1984 in high school, (laughs) could easily become a tool of oppression, right? And so these kinds of things are spooky. I think they have been used in really irresponsible ways already, and that's that's scary in itself, but I think that it could actually get a lot worse because it doesn't appear that there is any real check on this kind of power right now, which is quite disturbing. Right, right. And then besides war powers and surveillance, so sort of... Those are examples of Congress directly delegating powers to the president. You also see an increase in the use of executive orders with respect to domestic politics. Presidents have increasingly used their authority over the bureaucracy to craft policy. And this ties into, of course, Congress's increasing delegation to figure out the sort of fine text of rules that they give to the bureaucracy. The president, an executive order is merely a directive ordering some agency or department of the federal government to do something. Theoretically, that has to be within the parameters of laws passed by Congress. But one, laws are, of course, open to interpretation. And two, when you purposely write them in a vague way so that you can avoid responsibility for anything, um, well, they're open (laughs) to lots of interpretation in that case. It's actually the case that the use of executive orders peaked around the middle of the 20th century, but they are on the uptick again. And it's arguably the case that orders issued by presidents today are greater in scope and ambition than previous ones. I mean, for example, you can look at immigration. We also did an article on this that I'll link about Dreamers. Barack Obama used the power of executive order to prevent Customs and Border Patrol from deporting so-called Dreamers, undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. at a young age. Donald Trump used leftover military funds to begin building his Great Wall of Texas without Congress approving the use of said funds. Joe Biden and Donald Trump have relied on a provision of a federal statute to deny migrants reaching the border the right to claim asylum. So there's a lot of power in executive agencies, and as such, there's a lot of power in executive orders, particularly when they're, when rules are open to so much interpretation because of congressional vagaries. And besides immigration, you can also see this in gun control with Barack Obama attempting to craft a wide range of policies and, and 
through solely through executive orders, although these were struck down by the Supreme Court. He also tried to do this on climate change. Joe Biden, on the other hand, has implemented more executive orders than Obama or Trump in his first year in office. And among these have been a vaccine mandate and the end of the Keystone XL pipeline, which are not small initiatives. And you, people may have different thing, feelings about executive orders from Trump or Obama or Biden. You may like them, you may not like them. But it is an important development, I think, no matter what. And you see that even if it's being used towards you know desirable ends that you perceive as desirable in one way or another, there is, of course, the possibility that they are used for ends that you don't perceive as being particularly desirable. Right. I think the, we, the, the, it should be an important thing to recognize that if you look at one president and you say, okay, good, I like those. And you look at another president and you say, oh, wow, I really, really don't like those. It should be an indicator that there will be people who have right. this power who you will disagree with or perhaps will not care about democracy. And so just because you like it sometimes and dislike it others should actually suggest that it's not a good way of doing politics that right. so much power would be invested into one individual whose personality might dictate very destructive behavior with that power. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been pretty clear generally in terms of writing and podcasting and our, our, our position that Congress needs to sort of step up a little bit in, in, yeah. on just about every front. And so it's... Um, it's, I think that this is another example, right? I mean, like you can like policies that are being quasi implemented by a president, but one, they're going to be more durable if Congress passes a law, right? So they're not just going to be turned over by the next guy, which is what Trump did to Obama and Biden did to Trump. So, I mean, it, you know, and also, right, it's not just power increasingly being accrued to the Oval Office, which is, I think, generally not like a super great thing to happen. So, yeah. But you might think, if you listen to our past episode, this doesn't seem nearly as bad as Hungary. Well, it's true. In the U.S., executive aggrandizement is not that advanced or mature, let's say. The president is still highly constrained in many ways by competing institutions. The court system, as you see in the example of Obama's uh, initiatives on gun control and climate change, the courts can be a big thorn in the side of the president, even though Congress may continue to cede its power. There's still that third branch. You can also see that states have demonstrated some resistance to executive actions. Uh, you can see, for example, sanctuary cities, which uh, ignored Donald Trump's rules on immigration. And as we noted in the introduction, it hasn't advanced to the point that a single individual or party is increasing executive power, right? Both parties are doing it even as they, for now, trade power back and forth. So I think that that is important to remember, right? It's not at this advanced stage of like a Hungary where Viktor Orban is really like the guy in charge of the whole system. It's the institution. It's the office and the powers that have developed along with the office that are technically legal because no one has made them illegal or they're fully authorized by laws in the case of the Patriot Act or the authorization for the use of military force. So it's important to remember that it's the office that is gaining these powers. But as I said in the introduction, you know, just wait until the wrong person ends up in the office with those powers and they and they have designs that are potentially dangerous. And you might also think not only does that not sound as as bad as the Hungary situation. If you listen to our last episode, we talked about how strategic manipulation of elections has gone hand in hand, as it often does in Hungary, with executive aggrandizement. And you might think, 
I don't I can't think of many examples of strategic manipulation of elections coming from the executive from the president of the United States. To be clear, strategic manipulation of elections would take place before the election. So the one example that you might be thinking of right now that's looming in your head does not count as strategic manipulation. But there were some attempts. Right. I mean, that's true, is, is that Donald Trump tried to get the Supreme Court to restrict ease of access to absentee ballots in the 2020 election, but he failed to do that. And so that's, you know, that suggests, right, that the, the, the ability of the president to change the electoral rules before the election occurs is somewhat limited, right? But then, of course, you get his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election, and that obviously had significant consequences. Trump incited enough fervor to cause the Capitol insurrection, and now there are still state legislators that are attempting to, quote-unquote, audit the results in their states like Arizona. And they'll, they'll be talking about that for the next three years. Yeah, they'll be talking about that for the next three Sadly. years. Yeah, until they win an election. Right, um, well, yeah. <laughs> but he, didn't ultimately, he did not ultimately succeed as, as, as um, disturbing as those events were. But those are not what we would call strategic manipulation. I don't even know. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Phil, but I don't know what you would, how you would frame them under backsliding. It's more like overt it's, it's really, it's really It's really not backsliding. This is one of the things about Donald Trump, who is so, so profoundly artless and without any understanding of subtlety whatsoever is that Bermeo is talking about the changing tactics of aspiring authoritarians in light of situations which suggest that it's not a smart idea to do the overt stuff anymore. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that nobody does it anymore. It just means you either have to be very secure in your position to do mm -hmm. it and get away with it, or you have to be really freaking stupid or simply bold, I should say, to try to go that route. So I don't even think it falls really under backsliding. It falls under sort of classical attacks on, dem on, yeah, yeah, attacks on democracy. Yeah, is basically what, and that's what probably Donald tried to do. Because of who Donald Trump is as a person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think you can point to things that occurred under his presidency that would that we could reasonably consider backsliding a, sort of under Certainly. the realm of executive aggrandizement. One Certainly. of them would be that. But that, but but the the sort of hail mary that he pulled on the day of election certification was just absolutely ham fisted. Right. And right. I mean, terrible. You know, there's there's a world in which it potentially might have. Well, actually, no, it probably couldn't have worked in 2020. He would have needed to have laid the groundwork a little bit more. But the blueprint for something that might work was there. It was definitely there, and that's worth paying attention to. But yes, it was so ham-fisted and, and, and so so thoughtless that their their strategy at the end was, you know, get Mike Pence thank, to just thank <laughs> veto God. the results. Which it was, was so foolish. Yeah. But I think you can see sort of the sort of an executive aggrandizement occurring through the mechanism of impeachment, right? Donald Trump was impeached twice by Congress, once for holding up an arms transfer to the president of Ukraine as a quid pro quo for damaging information, supposedly damaging information on Joe Biden, and again, for his role in the events of January 6th. And I don't know, maybe pe people disagree with us, for me at least, I don't know about you, Philip, those uh, constitute cause for removal from office like that. And maybe they won't, they won't for some of our listeners, but it is hard to imagine a future in which a president sort of breaks the law or does something that could be conceived of as breaking the law and is removed from office and unless the opposing political party has 66 votes in the senate which and, is the threshold for removal and this yeah. is really important because as we've seen congress get more sorted and polarized and it has one delegated more power to the president as we've right, highlighted right and it's also created an environment which inhibits Congress 
from doing something like impeachment. Right. So not only has it permitted more power, it's also created the conditions under which a president could do illegal things to seize more power and not face penalties for it. Yeah. So it's a very dangerous mixture of of conditions in Congress. Yeah. It is it's it's not it doesn't look so good for Congress. And you know, may, I hope Congress listens to Bird's Eye because we're telling them to get their act together. Well, a state um, senator from Michigan just followed us. So yeah. you know, we're working our way up we're the food chain. We're working our way up the food chain. Exactly. So even if strategic manipulation hasn't taken place at the executive level, has it taken place elsewhere? Well, the short answer is yes, at the state level. If you look at something like congressional gerrymandering, which is the redrawing of electoral districts in a way that favors incumbents, we're seeing plenty of that. Last week, for example, North Carolina approved a new map that's likely to gain two or three seats in the House for the GOP. GOP would need a gain of five nationwide to take control of the House. So if, if we had the exact same vote totals as the last election, so this would be pretty significant. Obviously, Democrats have some power to gerrymander as well, like in Illinois. They've done the same to gain two or three seats. It's worth pointing out that in a lot of states, such as the state we are in right now, California, Democrats in power have empowered independent redistricting board to draw maps, whereas the GOP has been more reluctant to do in the states that they control. So they actually control the drawing of the maps, congressional maps in a lot more states than Democrats do. So they control more the drawing of more seats. Total. Yeah, certainly not trying to say that both are doing it the same amount. I mean, I think if you're serious about the situation where you have to confront the fact that Republicans are being a lot more aggressive about gerrymandering on average than Democrats. And not to mention that Democrats have proposed a bill, which is not going to pass. They would institute independent boards across the state. I think it's probably across the the country, across the country. Um, I think it's, you know, what they're doing in Illinois and probably what they're going to do in Maryland and maybe in New York are sort of defensive attempts, realizing that it was probably a mistake to (laughs) unilaterally disarm in this conflict. So this makes some votes matter less, right? I mean, if you're in a state where if you're in a district that was drawn specifically so that your party would be in the minority, your vote is not going to matter. It might even be wasted depending on how on how, how lopsided the district is. It discourages the participation of opposition and it negates the influence of those who still do turn out. So it, it, can, be, it can be quite catastrophic in terms of its effects. Very effective form of strategic manipulation. Another instance or another common form of strategic manipulation happening at the state level is the passage of new voting rules, which are intended to bolster election security, despite the lack, despite the lack of any evidence that there's any reasonable amount of fraud which takes place nationwide in elections, but people are scared about it. Voter IDs are often used in, as an example of something like this, critics claiming that They can be difficult, especially for marginalized people to acquire. I would say that ultimately there's 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 some reasonable good sense to have some requirement of photo ID to vote. But the trouble is when either the rule requires a new or specialized ID that you have to go out of your way to get or when rules for acquiring IDs in general whether it's your driver's license or anything else, are particularly difficult to meet, as is actually quite often the case. 
Another is, besides voter IDs, is voter registration rules and deadlines. A number of states require registration a month prior to election day or more, mostly Republican, though some Democratic states do this too. Texas is one of the worst examples about this. They have strict ID requirements, a registration deadline of 30 days prior to the vote, and no online registration at all. Alternatively, lots of states allow online registration or even same-day registration or even registering at the polling place where you go to vote, which are all good things. They don't allow anybody who shouldn't be voting to vote, and they make it easier for people who should be allowed to vote to vote. But perhaps the worst strategy or the most egregious strategy of, of voter suppression in the name of election security is the purging of voter rolls. This has happened all over the place. Georgia is a particularly good, quote unquote, good example of this, where the Secretary of State, Brian Kemp, was running for governor in 2018. And while running, used his office as Secretary of State to purge many voters from the registration rolls, basically deregistering them, lots of them without any notification that they had to re-register to be eligible to vote. And these were on the average, targeted toward black voters who were shown by polls to have a strong preference for Stacey Abrams, who's right. a black Democrat running against Brian Kemp. All of these strategies, whether it's purging voter rolls, voter IDs, or voter registration deadlines, all these things are very legal and done under the pretense of election security. But ultimately, they have the effect of discouraging turnout and participation of opposition just the same as gerrymandering. And that's why we would think of them as strategic manipulation of elections. So why has it happened in this way? And why does it matter? Well, by highlighting how a lot of this strategic manipulation has gone on at the state level, we see how Despite trying and even with ex aggrandized executive power, Donald Trump's ability, for example, to manipulate electoral rules or results is limited. A lot of the power in that department is delegated to state governments rather than the president of the United States. On the one hand, we see how our constitutional structure has some elements which can inhibit good governance and facilitate executive aggrandizement with the veto points and high potential for gridlock that we highlighted. But here we do see a particular virtue, maybe, of our system. Federalism, the division between the national government and the state government and the separation of certain powers between them, does actually make it a little bit harder for some would-be autocrat from holding all the cards in the process. The system is a little too diffuse. Now, we can also see how lots of power at the state level can, ena can enable all kinds of anti-democratic dominance at the regional level, which in our case is spilling up to have national implications as state officials redraw maps that affect national politics and purge voters from their roles. But it is perhaps an advantage of American democracy worth noting that it pulls some of this power out of the hands of the president so that even if he or she may have their power increased, they still can't do the kind of thing perhaps that Victor Orban or someone else like him might want to do. Yeah, I mean, I think that's 
mostly true. I know when we were discussing the episode before we recorded, I, I, I objected a little bit to this to this point, although I think we're mostly in agreement. I think that it is, you know, I think there's a need to emphasize that sort of the directionality here is toward state governments um, being a bulwark potentially of executive aggrandizement or executive seizure of power because, you know, a state that is run by a political party that is also aligned with some presidential individual or presidential candidate who seeks to sort of subvert the rules of the system is plausibly likely to support them. And I think it's also important to note that state governments themselves, as Philip noted above or noted before, are in many ways worse even than the federal government about their anti-democratic tendencies. If you look at how state legislative maps are drawn in, I don't know, Wisconsin or Ohio, you see that despite these being very tight states in presidential elections, won by Democrats or by Republicans, the state legislature maps can be drawn so that a supermajority can control one of the states. I think that's true in Ohio. Donald Trump won with about 53% of the vote, but I think that the Republicans have maintained, Republicans in the State House have maintained supermajorities in both chambers, which actually sounds rather similar to what happened in Hungary with Viktor yeah. Orban, right? So yeah. it's important to recognize, I think, that, you know, federalism has its advantages, but I think in some ways, and I think you're right, it's Philip, still vulnerable. It's still vulnerable, right? I mean, the institutions, I think it's important to note that in most ways, the institutions that America possesses, you can argue about how democratic those are or how democratic those were to begin with, the institutions more or less held against a Donald Trump-like figure. But someone of either party in the future, you know, maybe they won't. We don't know. And I think that that's important to recognize the direction that that's taking, even at the state level. At the end of all this discussion, though, here are the key points that we're trying to get across here. First, institutional increase in the power of the presidency is not good. It's ripe for abuse, it has been abused, and it's bad for democracy across the board. An empowered and effective legislature would be so much healthier in the long term. That, however, may be a long way away. The next key point is that backsliding in the United States is not as mature as it is in a place like Hungary, but that's hardly something to celebrate when you're measuring your government against a democracy which has almost totally fallen apart. The third key point is that, that said, many of the preconditions for things to get a lot worse here in America have at the federal and state levels taken place or are occurring right now. And finally, and importantly, we see that the modern methods for rolling back democracy are subtle often disguised as good for democracy. Think election security. So it's critical, right, that we learn how to identify what's happening, which is not always easy, and confront it where it is, rather than allowing the flimsy cover stories of covert rollback of democracy to dissuade us. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks.